Jewish views on Charlottesville, other concerns greater towards the violent clashes or President Trump's reaction. How to stand out in the jobs market? Victoria Sturman from Resource gives us the answer to that. And the Benazai program. We learn about the life-changing initiative from the chief rabbi's office. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news from the past week, I'm Phil Dave. Donald Trump reverted to blaming left-wing counter-protesters as well as white supremacists for the violence that erupted at a far-right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. At a press conference on Tuesday, the president appeared to backtrack from his statement the day before that explicitly condemned neo-Nazis and white supremacists for the violence seen at the weekend. Former Ku Klux Klan leader David Duke thanked the president on Twitter for his honesty and courage to tell the truth. But American Jewish politicians shot back at Mr. Trump's comments, calling for an unequivocal condemnation of white supremacists. A Jewish man has appeared in court charged with the murder of his mother and sister. 27-year-old Joshua Cohen allegedly stabbed 66-year-old Leah and 33-year-old Hannah at the family's home in Golders Green. Both women were pronounced dead at the scene by emergency services at around 8.50pm on Friday. His trial has been set for the 5th of February next year, with a plea and preparation hearing at the beginning of November. Mr Cohen was not present in court, no application for bail was made and he was remanded in custody. The manager of a hotel in Switzerland said she was wrong to post signs instructing Jewish guests to shower before entering the pool and to access the refrigerator at set times. Ruth Thoman, who runs the Paradise Arosa Hotel, 80 miles southeast of Zurich, responded to articles published by Israeli media outlets over the weekend. Ms Thoman said she has nothing against Jews and also claims that she may have selected the wrong words. The signs have since been removed. A care home resident in northwest London has been awarded the highest French order of merit for military and civil merits, aged 97. Walter Krauss, who lives in Edgware, was awarded the Légion d'Honneur this week and plans to wear it at the next Ajax parade. Mr Krauss was born in Vienna in 1919 but escaped following the Anschluss. He said he was touched to receive the award but added he thinks of those who didn't come back. And finally, two security guards at JW3 who helped tackle a blaze on a London bus just outside their building were heralded for their actions this week. Emilio and Marius grabbed a fire extinguisher from inside the Jewish community centre on Sunday night as flames and black smoke were pouring from the back of a 113 bus on the side of the road. JW3 boss Raymond Simonson described them as utter menches for their actions. From one mensch to another, that's the news. Now here's Andrew Sherwood with a look at the sport. I can't mention that again, Phil, but you really are one. Anyway, Hapa El Besheva moved a step closer to securing Champions League football after they won the first leg of their playoff tie on Wednesday evening. The Israeli champions had to come from a goal behind to beat Maribor 2-1, meaning they travel to Slovenia for next week's second leg, needing just a draw to book their place in the group stage of the competition for the first time in their history. Elsewhere, 
Ahead of next month's World Rhythmic Gymnastics Championships, Linoy Ashram won four bronze medals in her final warm-up event. The 18-year-old will be looking to become the second Israeli to win a medal at the World Championships, which take place in Italy. And finally, a week after Roy Keane was linked with the manager's job of the Israeli national football team, former England manager Steve McLaren is reportedly set to take on a consultancy role at Maccabi Tel Aviv. Remember, you can catch up on all the latest Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Hello there and welcome to this edition of The Jewish Views. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is online editor Jack Mendel and features editor Fran Wolfish. Welcome to you both. Starting off on the front page, as we tend to do, there's two stories on the front. The picture is taken from Charlottesville. The headline reads, Searing Hate in Trump's America. Yes, this is following on, obviously, from the terrible events that we saw in America this week. We didn't think, really, that neo-Nazis were so alive and well in America. Apparently, they're very, very healthy from the events that we've seen. And shockingly, Trump has come out and basically sort of castigated not only the neo-Nazi rally, but also the other side, kind of saying that there was sort of violence on both sides, which is quite incredible, really. Well, let's try and help understand this, okay? Because when President Trump says that there is blame on both sides, is he simply referring to that the fact, and we'll find out more about this later on in the programme because it is our main news story on this week's show, but... Is he referring to the fact that because the neo-Nazis, as we refer to them as, were licensed and actually were allowed, as it were, to carry out their event slash protest, whatever we're calling it, and the counter-protesters, the anti-fascists who were there, were not licensed, technically speaking, you could argue that although some might say they have a valid point for being there, they were potentially going to start trouble with a group of individuals who clearly don't agree with their political views. Is that what he was potentially getting at when he said there's blame on both sides? No, I think... Well, Donald that was a quick answer, wasn't it? Do you want to think I, about I that? Th- no, <laughs> I think Donald Trump is very, very dangerous in what he said because he's trying to draw some kind of moral or ideological equivalence between far-right KKK, white supremacist Nazis and people who are opposing them. And I think when you're getting to the stage in 21st century America which is supposed to be, you know, home of freedom and one of the world leaders in democracy. And you've got racists walking down the street and the president of America is saying that racists are on the same level as anti-racists. You know, what kind of precedent does that set? Uh, But is that how it's been interpreted? Is that how it's been interpreted or is that actually what President Trump meant? Because with the greatest amount of respect to President Trump, I don't even know if he knows what he means half the time. So how do we how are we supposed to know that that's what he meant? Essentially, what he has said is if if we go with the they were licensed to do it, they had permission to do it. And let's face it, we've seen these kind of rallies before in London, not to this extreme, thank God. But essentially, if you're saying that they're licensed, well, what are we going to find next? The Ku Klux Klan stringing someone up on a tree and saying, well, hold on there. We are licensed. We're, we're allowed to be here and to have our free speech. I mean, I think you can take it 
too far? Where does free speech stop and actually supporting the rights of your population, the human rights of your population begin and ensuring their safety and their security and their right to live in America with everyone else? So I think, no, I don't think his words have been taken out of context. And some people have called him a a fascist. Well, actually, I would say Trump's an apologist. That's actually the word that I would use for him. I'd also just add that I think it's important to note that words have an effect. You know, Trump coming out and saying that violence on all sides, in quotes, all sides must be condemned. That that does put the the two sides, the the Nazis and the anti-fascists, on some kind of equivalence, and it's just not there. One of the far right protesters got in a car, drove into a crowd of protesters, and killed someone. Whatever the violence of the anti-fascists, you know, they didn't kill anyone. So I think this is very, very dangerous for the leader of the free world to be making that kind of comparison. And I think it's right that even people in his own party have come out and condemned him and said that there's no place in America for white supremacy. Okay. well, we are going to be carrying on this discussion throughout this programme. Let's look at the other story on the front page this week very quickly. Headline reads, Community Heroes Legacy Lives On with New Charity. The Jewish News Award winner honoured on the anniversary of his passing. Yes, Simon Cooper was awarded the Jewish News Mitzvah Day Community Hero Award last November. And now a an organisation, a charity has been set up in memory of him, which is the Simon Cooper Foundation, which will hopefully raise funds for specialist medical care providers, including hospitals and hospices. So a really great cause and a great way to remember him. It is, absolutely. And in fact, actually, it's at this stage that I'll declare, and I've said it before on this programme, that I did know Simon relatively well. He was. I classed him as a friend even though that we did drift apart in the later years, but all the same, absolutely classed him as a friend. And I know that his family, ever since his passing, have been absolutely dedicated to do all they can to try and help raise awareness for the conditions that he suffered with in his 33 years. And it's a really, really nice way to remember him. Okay, let's have a look at some of the other stories that are making the paper this week. And this is something that has actually featured quite a lot in the paper over the last year. And it is, of course, the relationship between the Union of Jewish Students and the National Union of Students. But it looks as if things might finally be looking up. Yes. In the last year, Jewish students have not had the best of times on campus. The previous National Union of Students president, Malia Boatia, was defeated a couple of months ago. And the new president, Shakira Martin, recently met with the Union of Jewish Students and they said that they had a positive meeting and that they're now back on the same page. So for all of you who are getting your A-level results and you're heading to university in September, hopefully you'll have less to worry about. Well, here's hoping. I mean, I think that the thing that was the most telling was that Malia Boitier, who was, as you've mentioned, defeated recently, as the former president of the NUS, she used her closing speech at the very end to chant free, free Palestine. So I think that that should give listeners a rough idea of what they were up against in the last year. So hopefully less challenging times lie ahead. Okay, let's have a look at an extraordinary individual. The oldest man has died aged 113. 
Yes, quite incredible, isn't it? Yisrael Crystal died just one month before his 114th birthday. So he almost got to 114 years, which for most of us would seem absolutely <laughs> beyond expected human uh, life years. But he managed to get to 113. In fact, when he turned 113 last year, he actually celebrated his bar mitzvah almost a century after he was supposed to, he actually missed his b'mitzvah because of the First World War. It's incredible that he lived through to see that celebration. I would have loved to have been there for that with his bar mitzvah. Could you imagine that his, and maybe his bar mitzvah speech would be, well, now that I've finally grown up, or now that I've finally become a man, at the age 112, I don't think that there'll be many people who could claim that actually, that a century after they were supposed to have had their bar mitzvah, that they actually did have it. I think that in itself must be pretty much a record. Yes, it's an incredible story. He survived two world wars. He's had grandchildren and great-grandchildren. It's a really heartwarming story and he's a, a real inspiration. Truly is. And also, I think the fact that he must have seen so much in his lifetime that people could only imagine, especially in this day and age, where we're now getting further and further away from the world wars. And of course, all of us who are lucky enough to have been born into a generation of relative peace, I suppose you could say, relative, not complete, we just wouldn't have a clue with some of the sights that he's witnessed over the years. And it just, it really makes you stop and think that actually we are slowly but surely completely losing that generation. Yeah, we absolutely are. And I think that's why we have to appreciate anyone that we know of that generation. And we have to record their memories for posterity so that not only we learn from that, but also our children and future generations. Absolutely. Thank you both very much indeed. That's, I'm afraid, we'll have to leave it for a look at the paper this week. Don't forget you can pick up your copy of The Jewish News every Thursday across London, or you can always read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk. As you've been hearing, Donald Trump reverted to blaming left-wing counter-protesters as well as white supremacists for the violence that erupted at a far-right rally in Charlottesville, Virginia. At a press conference on Tuesday, the president appeared to backtrack from his statement the day before that explicitly condemned neo-Nazis and white supremacists for the violence seen at the weekend. Well, someone who was in Charlottesville when all of this kicked off was Rabbi Liz Goldstein, who I spoke to earlier in the week. I started by asking her to tell us what it was that she witnessed. I went down in conjunction with a group of other clergy, but because of a sort of probationary period from a different political arrest, I wasn't comfortable taking part in the direct action that the other clergy were. So I set off with a few other friends from a group called If Not Now, other young Jews, to bring water and snacks to the protesters around the city. Protesters so, in which sense, sorry? One can only assume you mean the anti-fascist protesters as opposed yes, to the... Yes, Okay. Right, because technically the fascists were there with a permit. So they were, whatever, their rally was the official thing, and the anti-fascists were the so-called protesters. So when we first got there, the rally wasn't supposed to begin. The, the uh, Unite the Right rally wasn't supposed to begin until 12. But as you, I'm sure, have seen in the, in the news and the pictures, they got started Friday night, actually, and had already, when I arrived in Charlottesville around 10.30, Emancipation Park was already quite full, and there was a huge presence of the anti-fascist protesters 
surrounding the park. Because the crowd of protesters was so big, it was a little hard to see who exactly was in the park, but I could clearly make out Confederate flags, Nazi flags, Identity Europa flags. A friend mentioned that she could see a Kekistan flag, which is a concept I'm vaguely familiar with from the internet, but I wouldn't know what that flag looked like. So it really was a wide range of this so-called alt-right that comes from you know, the deep, dark corners of the internet and real live white nationalists, neo-Nazis, KKK members, things like that. Do you mind if I ask you, why was it so important to you to be there? You mentioned right at the start of this that despite being in a sort of probation period following a previous protest, that you still felt it was important to be there. Why was that the case? Well, this is the first rally of this kind that I've ever seen. And to be this bold in white supremacy is really unnerving to me. I won't say shocking because we've seen it mounting and it's always been there. This current of white supremacy in America has never died down the way some people want to think it has, but it's, it hasn't been this bold in my lifetime. And so to see that people were gathering like this was frightening to me. And, you know, as a rabbi, as a spiritual person, as a Jew who cares about social justice, who cares about equality, who cares about, you know, my friends who are people of color, who cares about my family's history, I just couldn't not be in support of my friends who could really counteract some of this hate, even if I felt like I wasn't in a position to be a part of the direct actions I wanted to be there and be supportive as best I could. And I feel like I did do that. I mean, the water, it was a very hot day. The Unite the Right rally had their own sort of homemade or whatever tear gas canisters. I'm not sure how, like how a not police officer gets their hands on something like that, but they were tossing them from the park into the crowd of protesters So our people really were in great need of that kind of physical support to have constant water being run out to them, having someone bring them back to the church when they needed some sanctuary, things like that. So I am glad that I I went and filled the role that I did. What's interesting about all of this is that you said earlier on as well that the Unite the Right had the license to be there. So technically speaking, they were the organized protest. They were as it were, in the right to be there, but the anti-fascist movement wasn't. Even knowing that that, technically speaking, was against the law in America's eyes, as it were, and probably, you know, in terms of sort of the law of the world, if someone's licensed and something's not, mm-hmm. it was interesting that you as a rabbi still felt the need to be there. Did you not recognize that as, as it were, breaking the law, that it would pose quite a risk? That risk is why I chose the more supportive role so that I wouldn't be in in the center of anything that would be considered an unlawful assembly. I was just in town, happened to be carrying around a lot of water coming and going. The fact that you just happened to be by a process is neither here nor there. Okay. All right. So we hear that. But then what do you make then 
as an American Jew and obviously as a rabbi as well. What do you make of President Trump's reaction to this? Because he seems to have sparked possibly more outrage than the actual Unite Against the Right has in the first place in terms of his so-called hesitation, shall we call it, to condemn some of the actions of the far right versus his now what appears to be at surface value almost backtracking on his word where he's blaming both sides. So how do you react to that? I'm not surprised at all. I mean, this is this is what he campaigned on. He was huge in the birther movement before his campaign, you know, against Obama. He used many anti-Semitic dog whistles in his campaign ads. Such as, sorry? He retweeted an ad. I don't think he actually made this one, but he retweeted an ad with, like, Hillary's face and a huge Star of David over it. Okay. So um, just And all of the, like, the last big ad he put out that he his campaign did actually make that talked about the globalists and the the capitalists and all of those, you know, those little, those dog whistles, things like that, that he been using this since the beginning. And he was also slow and tepid to denounce David Duke's endorsement of him during his campaign. And this week when he did, he made again a sort of tepid response to the events in Charlottesville saying, there was so much violence on many sides. David Duke responded, it wasn't many sides that put you in office. Make sure you remember that. Something like that. So we should so, just remind our listeners that David Duke was the former leader of the Ku Klux Klan. Correct. Okay. Also, the other thing as well is that as a, a Jew living in America and having witnessed this on your shores, and let's be honest, not too far from where you reside and where you practice as a rabbi, how does Correct. it make you feel? Do you feel safe as a Jew living in America? I mean, I feel more at risk now than I have ever before in my life. Every time I pull up to my synagogue, especially if I'm, you know, there to just do some work and not actually coming for a community event and I know I'm going to be there alone, I wonder what I'm going to drive up to, who's going to come knocking on my door. Those aren't fears I ever felt before. And part of that's coming from coming from New York and New England and moving down to Virginia. But part of it's also the current political climate. Rabbi Liz Goldstein talking to me about what she witnessed when violent clashes broke out in Charlottesville, Virginia, which has sparked outrage not only over the violence, but President Donald Trump's reaction to it. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be here for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and I will be joined by community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz. We'll be discussing whether or not Jews should be reassured or alarmed by the examples of anti-Semitism making global news. Plus, community editor Diana Toman will be speaking to Elise Abrahams, who will be telling us about the Benazai program from the office of the chief rabbi. But first, in this day and age, all too often do we hear how people struggle to come by jobs. The question is, how does one stand out from the crowd when applying for a position? Well, that's a question that Resource, the Jewish charity that helps members of the community back into work, believe they can answer. 
Our very own Kate Fulton has been speaking to CEO Victoria Sturman about a forthcoming event they have at Facebook HQ in London, no less. Kate started by asking Victoria to remind us exactly what it is that Resource do. So Resource is an organisation, we're a charity that helps people get into the jobs market. Anybody who's not working through redundancy, dismissal, a career break, who needs help getting back into the workplace, Resource as the organisation. We're a charity and so we don't charge for any of our services and we're very effective of getting people back into work quickly. So this isn't done online, so people... I'm assuming they would they would ring up and they would make an appointment and they actually come in to see you. This isn't just a phone thing. Absolutely. So people make an initial call to our very friendly team of administrators and volunteers who pick up the phone and come and see us. They'll sit down with one of our advisors who will spend probably about an hour with them just discussing their, their story. Why, why are they not working at the moment and what sort of help could they get from resource? After that, they'll work through a program with us where they come to a series of meetings and seminars, but, but really all face to face. And we take as much time as each person needs on their job search. Are these people who talk, are they professional advisors? How do they know about the job market? Everyone who works for resource or volunteers for resource has a huge amount of experience at getting people into work, back into work. The advisors come from a range of backgrounds. We have people who have business backgrounds, IT, consultancy. We have HR advisors, people who are in a life coaching role. And together as a team, we cover all the areas that we need to and have the skills that we need to help people with their job search. And you run seminars as well. What, are, what sort of seminars are these? Yes, so alongside the work that the advisors will do with the individual, we run a series of workshops and seminars that are all relevant to people needing to get back into the jobs market. So there are 12 different workshops and seminars ranging from our flagship two-day one which is called tools and techniques for today's job market a bit of a mouthful but really it's a very comprehensive introduction to everything you need to know about being successful in today's job market after that there's workshops to do with practicing your networking skills learning interview skills then we've got very practical ones for example on LinkedIn and how to set up your LinkedIn profile which is absolutely vital for everyone looking for a job we have seminars on competences and and how to really make your job application stand out communication and presentation skills and several others I want to talk in a minute about your event but can you think of any fabulous success stories that you've had I mean you must have had a lot of people maybe numbers of people that you've helped and resources have been going 25 years actually in that time we think we've helped over 12,000 possibly many more people and the range is absolutely enormous so we're helping people who have newly arrived in the UK and have absolutely no one to turn to and no one to help them get a job we're helping people who've had a career break and in fact someone who came to us not long ago had not worked for 19 years having had four children and we're helping people towards the end of their career as well recently we helped a lovely lady who had 
been working in a nurseries and realised that she had a certain salary aspiration that was never going to be achieved through working with children and she realised that she needed some work in an office through a lot of work with an advisor, working into seminars and also some voluntary work in an office. She's now had the confidence to apply for several different office jobs within schools that fit around childcare and in fact she was offered two of them. She's just accepted one and will start in September. It's a success story. So it is your silver wedding anniversary. <laughs> and how are you going to be celebrating? It is. 25 years is, a, we think, a huge achievement. And we're going to have a number of celebrations. We're starting, uh, we're relaunching a, a workshop, actually looking at digital techniques and how to survive web and digital interviews, how to really thrive at being interviewed over Skype, for example. We are having a party to thank all of our team and volunteers and sponsors as well. But also we're holding an event. So we've created an event that we're calling How to Stand Out in the Jobs Market. This is really a taster of what Resource does. And we'd like to invite absolutely anybody who has any interest at all in thinking about the jobs market in thinking about applications they might be thinking about changing jobs so really it's a taster a glimpse of what we do we've lined up some tremendous speakers and in fact our keynote speaker is professor julia hobsbawm and she's the the world's first professor in networking so we're, we're very honest I didn't even know that was an actual thing a professor of networking just shows the importance of coming to these sort of seminars and meeting people mm, absolutely so so networking is one of uh, probably the most important area that we cover in resource because we know that that so many jobs are not advertised and they're really found through word of mouth through people you know is there a percentage on that so, so we think over 70% of jobs, and we've done some research, and it seems to bear out, and some people say even higher percentage, and it could be up to 80% of jobs are found through some sort of networking. And would this particular event, how to stand out in the jobs market, be suitable for someone who, thinking of, they're in a job, but they're not terribly happy, they wouldn't mind moving, or do they have to not have a job? This event is for, for anybody. There are no criteria at all. People could be in a, work, in a job very happily. They could be out of work. It could be a student and it could be somebody who is retired. So really just some, anyone who's got an interest in learning a little bit more about job applications and about networking. We're going to cover practicing interview skills. And we're also going to have our resource advisors on hand to do what we're calling CV clinics. We're going to be pre-booking slots with advisors where they will have a session looking at your CV and giving tips on improving CVs. You're the chief executive. I know you've not been there 25 years, obviously, but during the time that you have been there and what you've heard about it, what would you say the biggest changes that have happened in the job market over the last decade and a half, two decades and a half? I think in my time, I've seen us sort of coming out of a recession. I've seen uncertainties with, with Brexit. And so a lot of change in the political environment. I'd say right at the moment, we, we see that there are a lot of jobs out there. It's very encouraging for our job seekers. It, it's still disappointing that so many people feel that they, they need help from resource, much as we're delighted to help job seekers. It feels like that there is still a stigma amongst the Jewish community. And so those who are unemployed struggle a little bit to, to tell people and to get help for it. But really, it's very encouraging. We, we see that jobs are available and, and there are really, it is almost a buyer's market when it comes to jobs. I think unemployment is at a 11-year 
record low at the moment. Changes in terms of how people go about getting jobs, certainly the uh, impact of of online techniques and uh, digital technology. LinkedIn has become an absolutely vital tool, as I mentioned earlier, for job seekers. And it's a way of accessing the jobs market. It's, It's totally free and you can build a network very quickly. Recruitment, so organizations, companies doing recruitment are saving time and money by using digital and web techniques. So, for example, they might send out a video link to do a a video interview where they can interview many people in one day if each one is having a quick slot on a video. And there's a lot more telephone interviews as well. So it's less face-to-face interviews, certainly for the early rounds of recruitment. That in itself presents different challenges for our clients because actually, as you probably know, being interviewed by telephone is and by video, they both have different challenges, but where you can't build up the rapport, where you can't nod and look interested and smile is, is very difficult. So we cover that in our workshops. Skype interviews have added complexity because of the technology. So a lot of people feel a little bit nervous about Skype. They've used Skype to speak to their kids abroad and know that sometimes the technology drops, you you lose connection. And in an interview situation, you can panic when that happens. So our new workshop will actually give people the opportunity to practice. Each person in, in the workshop will be given a tablet and will be asked to do practice Skype interviews with one of our team who won't be sitting in the room. CEO Victoria Sturman talking to Kate Fulton there about Resource's forthcoming event, How to Stand Out in the Jobs Market, taking place at Facebook's London headquarters on the 12th of September. If you would like more information, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. In just a moment will be this week's schmooze. Don't forget to tune in to the live stream every Thursday evening from 7pm British Summertime on our Facebook page. It's one of a number of ways that you can share your Jewish views with us. And speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, you can also email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter, we are at Jewish Views UK. Now, the Benazai program is an annual initiative from the Office of the Chief Rabbi. The aim is to offer university students the chance to see firsthand the developing world. This year's program will see students taken to Ghana, where they will learn about the challenges of poverty, education and social mobility. Community editor Diana Toman has been speaking to Elise Abrahams, who took part in the 2016 program. Diana started by asking Elise to tell us a bit more about the Benazai programme. This must have been an extraordinary experience for you. Had you ever been to India before? No, I'd never been anywhere like that before. It very much stayed to Western countries, my experiences going abroad. So it was definitely an experience. So you were, you and... Quite a lot of other people, but 16 students, were you all the same age? So we were all university students, but it varied from first year uni to fourth year uni. So I was one of the youngest, but it ranged to people four years older than me. And you were all deposited, if I can put it like that, in the slums of Mumbai. Yes. That must have been a shock. (laughs) No, it was. We didn't spend our whole time in the slum, like the whole week, but the time we did spend there was very interesting. What did you find struck you most? about that sort of experience coming from your background? So for me, like the biggest thing was actually the animals. So everyone said, you kind of assume when you think of slums that there's going to be litter everywhere, there's going to be people on the streets. So I was kind of expecting that. 
But when I walked in, the first thing I saw was a giant pig that was humongous. That's a nice thing for a nice Jewish girl I to know. see. <laughs> and with about five piglets just surrounding it. And there's just wild animals surrounding the slum. So we saw water balls, pigs, dogs, loads of different kinds of animals just living with the humans. So for me, that's what struck me the most. And the thing that every time I think back to the slums, that's what I think of, that the humans are just living one-on-one with these wild animals. Are they actually tending the animals for food? or are they, I mean, these are not pets, I assume. No, definitely not pets. I don't even think for food. I think they're just scattered round just there. amongst the litter, amongst everything they're, going they're, on. They're, they're feral. Yeah. Yes. What do you think you learnt from it, that experience? Because you were there for about a week, I gather. Yeah, altogether a week. I think one thing that really stuck out for me the most and what I think that I would come back and learn from it is you don't... Obviously, you know that there's a wider world out there and you know there's stuff going on elsewhere, but until you actually see it firsthand and see what the life that they're going through, it doesn't really hit you as much. From what I learned is that there very much is another world out there that we're so, I wouldn't say oblivious, but we're so naive as to the situations going on. So I learned very much to be aware of what's going on and to try and help in whatever way we can. I think that's the crucial word, isn't it? That we're not oblivious, but we're unaware Yeah, quite often. And the contrast between, the I, I imagine, the contrast between the very wealthy and the very poor must have struck you. Yeah, so beforehand, everyone was telling me that there's rich beyond rich and poor beyond poor but I assumed that one area was just going to be really rich people and one area was going to be the slums but it's not like that at all it's very intertwined that next to most expensive building in Mumbai there'll be a slum and then after that will be another expensive building then a slum and people living on the streets like right outside our hotel which was a very nice hotel there were people begging on the streets there is a massive contrast but it's very intertwined within the city Yes, and were you given any sort of advice as to what to do about the people begging on the street? Yes, we had a lot of sessions beforehand to prepare us for the programme. So within these sessions, we had people that had been to these countries before, so would tell us what to do in these situations. And it's very much up to you. Like If you feel that you want to give to them, then that's a decision you want to make. But we were advised to step away and to avoid, because a lot of the beggars on the streets especially children because they send their children out to do that a lot of them had never seen white people before or people with blonde hair so for them it was a big shock I had a lot of children coming up to me and pulling my hair because they'd never seen a blonde person before so they thought it was a wig it is a very difficult situation but yes 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 I can imagine now this is not the end of the story is it I gather that you're all going to be ambassadors yes and is that I mean, you're visiting, what are you visiting exactly and where as an ambassador? Just from my experiences, what I've done since I've come back is I've spoken at my university, which is the University of Birmingham. I've spoken in my synagogue, which is Bushy United Shul. I've written an article for a Benair Kiva blog for my Bushy magazine. And I've also spoken in youth services. So it's it's basically just trying to speak and to raise awareness as much as possible to go and tell people the message that we want to 
try and come across. I've been, I went into Yavna College as well. So that's what I think the role is to be an ambassador. You're painting a picture, yeah. as it were, of what, of what you've experienced and what you saw. Yeah, exactly. And would you recommend it to anybody else? To oh, 100%. You would? Yeah, just to have that experience of being in a structured programme, like the Benazai programme, but to go and see and experience the things that we got to see is, I think, important for everyone because most people, especially Jews, don't get that opportunity. Yes, that I can imagine that, yes. Because it's not something that's happened very often. I gather this is only the, that event last year was the first? Yeah, we were the first trip. So you were the first, you were the pioneers, <laughs> right. And this year's trip is going to be what and where? It's in Ghana. So it's the same, it's a week-long trip, the same sort of situation like ours where they go to, but instead it's in Ghana, so they're going to Ghana for a week to, again, see the situation there to become ambassadors in the future. Elise Abrahams talking to community editor Diana Toman there about the Ben Azai programme from the Office of the Chief Rabbi. If you would like more information on how to apply for this year's programme, then you can go to our website, jewishviews.co.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the program so far. Joining Phil, Dave and me today is community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carbritz. The subject is based on two items we heard in the news earlier on. I'm sure by now you are aware of the violent clashes that took place in Charlottesville in Virginia last weekend, and even more aware of President Donald Trump's reaction to it. This, together with the news that a hotel manager in Switzerland has apologised for signs that request Jewish guests shower before using the pool facilities, all makes for quite disturbing reading. The question is, should we in the global Jewish community take comfort from knowing that these dubious examples of behaviour come to the surface quickly enough to do something about it, or should we be concerned by what some believe to be the rise of the far right? Judy, let's start with you. Do you take comfort in knowing that the world learns about such instances, as the aforementioned, Mm -hmm. quickly enough to do something about it? Or is it more disturbing, do you think? I think it's a sort of, I don't know, what can I say, mind judo. The more it's publicised and it's it's seen to be happening, people are going to hopefully, by nature I'm an optimist, I can't help it, I just am. And I think people are going to stand up and be counted and be against anti-Semitism. And I think the more publicity, and certainly I know in that Swiss one, they were writing notices against Jews shouldn't use the fridge either because the Orthodox Jews were using, were putting their stuff in the fridge. Yes, they restricted them. They they said that they should only be using the refrigerator at certain times and not disturb the staff in the process. But to be fair to the hotel manager, they have apologised and removed the sign. If they just that's it. If they just said clients, visitors, whatever you call them, shouldn't use it at certain times, fine. But not specify. I think actually the American one is is much more terrifying, and President Trump's 
behaviour after it is very odd, to put it mildly. I, know, I think we should be really frightened by these things that are happening. I mean, you say it's comforting that people do react to it straight away. Yeah, that, that, that's true. But the fact that you know, so-called intelligent people come out with this stuff, and yeah, the, I find that really that beggars belief. And the American extreme right people who caused all the trouble in Charlottesville, yeah. and a woman was killed, as we know, are absolutely cock-a-hoop because they think that the president looks upon them in the same way that he looks upon the protesters. Though he did earlier on in the week, even if he did at Surface Valley backtrack on it, he did condemn in the strongest possible sense the neo-Nazis who carried out this sort of violence. But afterwards, afterwards, he put it, he put it right and then he condemned the other side just as much. I don't think he necessarily condemned the other side. We have to be fair that he did say that he sees fault with both sides or that he says that there is blame on both sides. But he has to say that, doesn't he? He's got to try and cover himself. Why does he have to say it, Liz? No, doesn't he? He sort of has to cover himself. He says one thing and he upsets one lot of people. You say something else, you upset another lot. Well, I think the bottom line with Donald Trump is that he is, and whether you believe this or not, I think he is trying to please the masses, but probably doesn't recognise that in politics, you're never going to please the masses. There's always going to be someone who disagrees with you and is upset by what you do. But in fact, he's not losing, he's not uh, pleasing the masses because... No, I said he's trying to. I didn't say he's... That's that's what I thought His popularity has gone down Mm. tremendously. And the Republican Party themselves are against what he's been saying. Everyone Mm. is very shocked by him. Well, you know that when he was voted in, I came here and I said, no, I'm entirely for him. I'm now, this is the one thing that has stopped me supporting him, well, I are. think. And you're, it, a, you're a good example yes, there. Yes, And there are many people in America now who feel the same way. Many people in the Republican Party. And by sitting on the fence, which he's doing, he's trying to say, there's fault here and there's fault there. Well, in the end, you please nobody. Well, exactly. At least if he sided with one, he'd please 50% or whatever it was. But now he's everyone's. But he was more, I mean, he's, it started off quite controversial, didn't he? Yes, it started off, he's carried on quite controversial yeah. as well, <laughs> so let's be honest. Really, yeah. I think the truth is, though, and where I, where the original point that we're making with the schmooze and the question that you asked, Clive, about should we take comfort from it, I personally feel that in a world where we live where there is instant news now through the world of social media, whether that's Twitter, Facebook, or even the rolling news channels, I do believe we need to take some comfort in knowing that our news is served up pretty much as and when we get it. There almost isn't time for situations to escalate to such a degree that, say, would have been the case in the 1930s because it doesn't mean that it can't happen and we need to be aware of it but at least at least we know about it but that's such a good point because even people have phones not even the news you know every everything is just at our fingertips well everything is instant is it absolutely instant so that is that's an that is a fantastic thing really well is it i i i question that i i just wonder whether it's not in a way making more trouble because it's giving... Do you giving think misrepresenting? Misrepresents, mm. Well, yes. you know where it could give a bit of a, an alternative side to that mm. is that it gives people ideas. Where you have yes. instant news now, 
look, for example, and I'm sorry to give such a horrible example, but we do have to think of this. Here in London, there's been a horrendous increase in acid attacks. That's the, yes. that's a new thing that seems to have been taking over society, where just all of a sudden innocent people just get acid thrown yes. at them. Now, as recently as a year ago, would anyone have even thought on the scale yeah. that it is now to throw acid in someone's it's face? It's copycat, isn't but, it? But, but the wasn't one person doing it, doing all of them? But originally they'd say that about television programmes, that if you watch a lot of violent TV... That encourages people to be more violent. Well, well isn't that why the watershed the same, was introduced? So yes. there is things to so, counterbalance. So, so that is a good point that you've made. But the acid attacks, you're quite right, are the most frightening things because yes. it's grown by yeah. such an extent. It's and horrific. it appears to be, That's... in this case, most of the times, people who have acid thrown in their faces happen to be quite ordinary British Muslims. And again, it's hatred which is bringing it about. So there you go. That's my point exactly. That unfortunately, this world of instant news could work in two ways. But as is the case with most situations, there's always good and bad in everything. And I feel that unfortunately, in the instant news world, that is probably the bad side of things, that people can get ideas. And as you say, Judy, just almost copycat them. Yes, I get an email normally every couple of days from America a Jewish one about Jewish news, mainly in America. Today, it was about a horrific incident that had happened in Golders Greenbury. Yeah, because the yes. young man who, who, who allegedly yeah. been accused of murdering his mother and his sister. Okay, but so fair enough, then that was an example of what you got in this email, in yes. this instant news. So but... it's our stuff, and then we get America's stuff, they get our... It's but at the same time, so what are you suggesting that that sort of news should be kept under wraps, that we shouldn't no, know about no, it? No, but sometimes should. it's like Chinese whispers, though. You know, it depends how it's reported. And then they re-report it, for want of a better word. But I, they're giving back our news, you're yes. saying. this, this uh... Isn't the awful truth that good news doesn't make news? Everything in the news has to be to some degree, quite bad, something unpalatable. Yeah. But that's what they say. Yes. I remember well, when no, I, that when is I true. First, that is was, true because I, yeah. I have worked in a BBC newsroom mm. where when bad news comes, everybody gets extremely excited and says, oh, we got the room of yes, well, I'm, I'm utterly ashamed to say that there yeah. is still truth in that statement. Well, yes. Yes. It's not that they get excited by what they've heard. They are excited as journalists that it's they can story. actually thrive on their yes, work. Exactly. But it's even a good so, story. But then wouldn't it be nice if at the end of the news... They would have some little snippet that was a more positive or and something nice. Could turn that off happened. when that came up, you know, something <laughs> or say something nice at the but end. But like again, a nice unfortunately, story. unfortunately, there are not many good things happening that make news. But there are good oh, things are. happening. But you mean there they're are. not? You just news don't hear worthy. about it. That's the whole point. Well, they're exactly. not as interesting. They don't make news. They're not, not as interesting. No, they're not yeah. as interesting. See, equally in the same measure that if one was to hear about an interfaith initiative, just for argument's sake, to say that a synagogue and a mosque had some sort of event that they put on together, that wouldn't be as newsworthy as, say, one attacking the other. You're so right. And that's the problem. That is almost the issue. We're not encouraging, I believe anyway, and I'm not encouraged to have an opinion, but I believe that we as a society don't encourage 
decent, honest and good behaviour because all we are fed is constant bad What's news. Yeah, but this has always exactly. been the case. Because there was a good news newspaper that was started, wasn't there? How big Once, was it? And it? It didn't last more than a couple of issues. Well, there you go. That's the point I tried to make paper. about... That's the point I That's the point I was trying to make about in the BBC newsroom because it's absolutely, it's true about all journalistic stories. The bad stories are the good stories, if you see what I mean. Yes. They make the news. From a professional point of view. From a totally professional point of view. What a nice, juicy story. So So in that case, should we not be any more alarmed then than we already have been over the years by what we see as what could be deemed well, as the rise of the far right. Oh, the another... majority of people that a lot, you know, because people are seeing this on the news all the time, the violence, and we, we all get worked up about it, especially if it's something to do with a Jewish topic or something. Do you think people are seeing so much of it? Do you think they get that worked up about it? Well, you mean it? they almost become desensitive? The no, yeah, I think I've talked, I've talked to a lot of people, Jewish, non-Jewish, for all sorts yeah. of people, who are absolutely shocked by the Trump story. But I can't help but feel, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but I can't help but feel that the majority of people are good. And I don't know if that's an ignorant thing to say or not. And the majority of people know the right and the wrong thing to do. And it's because of this minority, and hopefully it will remain a minority, that do once in a while misbehave display signs of anti-Semitism or just anti-anything behaviour, does it mean that we should be worried that this is the start of, say, another world war? Personally, I don't think so. But who knows? I I just I hope that it is the minority and remains the minority. I I hope you're right. But and I don't think you're being naive because I do think basically the majority of people are good. Well, I just want to just want to end with one story which I may have told before but I just think this points towards it. In the early 1930s, my father as a young man was visiting Germany. He discovered a Hitler rally and he went out of interest to it. At the end of the rally all the German people there started shouting, Heil, Heil, Heil and putting up the Nazi salute, and my father found himself doing it. And suddenly he thought, oh my God, I'm a Jew, and I'm also shouting and screaming, Heil Hitler, Heil Hitler. And that's the point. That's the point. And that's what happens. And that's the frightening thing. And at that point, I think we'll leave it. And I leave you all to think about that. My thanks to our guests, community volunteer Liz Hirschkorn and founder of the Jewish Poetry Society, Judy Carberts. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us and you can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue. Serve the Eternal One with gladness. Come before God with joyous songs. 
It was in the week and Friday afternoon preceding Tisha B'Av that my family and I were experiencing aspects of Jewish Portugal. First a visit to the Kodori Mekor Chaim Synagogue, the largest shul in Sepharad, that boasts 200 members from 21 countries. From a regular minyan to mikveh and kosher store to kids' cheder, this is a thriving community. The proud history of the Jews of Portugal, and specifically Oporto, are displayed in a fascinating museum. We learnt so much in this space and conversations with our Ashko normative children opened their eyes to the beauty of Sepharad. Further south on Friday afternoon, we found ourselves in the restored sanctuary of the small synagogue of Tamar, the oldest preserved shul in Portugal. Built in the mid-15th century, the Inquisition led to the demise of the Jewish community and the building, it being used variously as a prison, Christian chapel, a barn, a common cellar and a grocery warehouse. But in the 1920s, the process to restore the building as a synagogue and museum began. Today there is a pulpit, an ark with a safer Torah and the potential to be a regular house of worship, if there were more than the two Jewish families living in Tomar today. Feeling a surge of history and emotion well inside, and after fellow tourists had left us alone, I invited my girls to sing L'Chad Odi with me to welcome the Sabbath in this sanctuary, an outpost of the God of Israel. Being early teenagers, they ran out knowing what it is to be embarrassed by their dad as I let rich with a Sephardi melody. With my eyes closed, I then recited Kaddish for the Jews of Portugal and Spain who had been murdered, forced to convert and flee to leave an empty sanctuary. Yet the echo of my voice remained, as did theirs, serving God in joy. In Sidra Re'e, we have the Deuteronomic injunctions to destroy all sites of worship, both Israelite and pagan, to centralise worship. The emergence of pagan practices in a town would incur all its inhabitants being killed, the town and its spoil to be consumed by fire, that JPS translates as a holocaust, to the eternal your God. As a liberal Jew, I understand these passages in their historic context, mourn the tragedies of our people that led to our dispersion, and yet celebrate the rich diversity it produced. Subsequent disasters in too many generations necessitate rebuilding and renewal that we do best when we move beyond a need for retaliatory destruction or a mythical return to a centralised cult. May the Eternal One be served with gladness and may joyous songs soar from all God's sanctuaries on earth, wherever we find them. It's interesting, listening to Rabbi Goldstein just now, I was lucky enough in 2016 to go to South Africa, not least of all because it's where half my family come from, but actually it was for a friend's wedding. And as we stepped into the synagogue in Cape Town, where the wedding was, it was really bizarre how there was something really comforting about it. So it doesn't matter where a Jew is in the world, just to be able to step foot into a synagogue and know that there is something familiar, something almost homely about it. It does give you almost this, I think the way I described it to Rabbi Goldstein when I saw him recording that reflection, was that it's almost as if it gives you a Jewish hug around you, just that you know that wherever you are in the world, there's something of home with you. 
Anyway, all the same. Thank you very much to Rabbi Aaron Goldstein from Northwood and Pinner Liberal Synagogue with our thoughts for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Rabbi Liz Goldstein, telling us about her experiences in Charlottesville, Virginia. To Victoria Sturman from Resource on their forthcoming event at Facebook HQ in London. Elise Abrahams talking about her experience on the Ben Azai program from the Chief Rabbi's office. Thanks to our other contributors and, of course, to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producer, Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting our website, jewishviews.co.uk, where you'll also find the facility to listen again to any of our previous episodes as well. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.